Welcome to the CDC Podcast Minisode 3. Unlike our main podcast series, the Minisodes are a chance for myself and a co-host to highlight some games that have gotten virtually no criticism written about them. This is our chance to correct that. It can be anything from itch.io art games, prestige level indie games, all the way to AAA games that might have slipped between the cracks. Though generally they will skew a little smaller. With me this time is Editor-in-Chief of Zeal, AVB. Hi there. So let's jump right into it and back and forth. So you go first. All right, cool. So first thing, I guess you said there are no rules. You didn't actually say that precisely, (laughs) but you said there are very few rules. So one of the things that I'm going to do is I'm going to kind of like talk about why I chose the games that I chose and kind of like what sort of criticism I want to see. Because part of the reason that I started Zeal was not just because I wanted to see more like really good criticism, but also because I wanted to see criticism of certain kinds of games that weren't covered so much or weren't really thought of as worthy of critical attention. And I think part of that is due to kind of like our standards for what is criticizable or what makes good criticism or like what is worthy of criticism has some kind of like many implicit biases. And it'd be cool to kind of like rethink those in certain ways and like I have my own biases and my own things that I think are real cool and so I want to kind of like I'm going to tell you a little bit about those in hopes that maybe you'll be inspired to perhaps do similar criticism or maybe you'll just react against my brand of criticism which I think would be pretty interesting anyway so I think that the first game on my list is Dragon Guard 3 is should I just are there no rules <laughs> so far Okay, so Dragon Guard 3 is an incredibly janky sort of like Devil May Cry-esque game. It's the third in a series of kind of budget titles by, uh, I think Dragon Guard 3 is not done by Kavia, which was the company that worked on the first two, but it has a lot of the same people and it has a lot of the same general experience kind of interestingly meta in a lot of ways it's like very similar to near or it's done by most of the same people as near which was a kind of like cult classic as well i like dragon guard 3 i haven't actually played near from everything i've heard near is really 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 good i like that dragon guard 3 is about kind of like a, a horrible horrible woman she's really cruel and lazy and violent and mean and it's really nice to kind of like have a protagonist that isn't being we like talk about these like strong female characters or whatever and we even make fun of them but we don't often actually see a character that seems kind of like human in a very flawed way or or they usually don't get to be gross and mean and not good in the way that zero the protagonist is and i think there's so much going on with that game with the dialogue the way it was localized by the same company that localized fire emblem awakening that kind of i don't know suggests just a certain type of dialogue and style that's very B-movie, but also very cleverly written, like vulgar in ways that make might make people uncomfortable, but also very humanizing of its protagonist and genuinely funny in a way that most video games I've played have not been funny. And it's rough, but not in the sort of way that like, I guess like quote unquote offensive humor typically is. It's like the kind of offensive humor, quote unquote, that I like because I think it actually like gets to a lot of the experiences of uh, womanhood that feel like super legit and identifiable to me, as well as just like her general 
humanity in ways that the kind of like similar anti-hero has become boring and cliched in virtually every other action game. This one has kind of like refreshed a lot of the things that are super stereotypical, like the kind of stuff that we make fun of all the time about video games. And I think the fact that it's needling at that stuff, like really precisely and deliberately is amazing. And one of the, I don't know, it seems like it would be so much more fruitful for criticism than a lot of like our Far Cries and our Bioshocks and our games that are seeming, wanting to make critiques of video games, but kind of like being the things that we're making fun of more than not. So that's one case for Dragon Guard 3 is being important target of video game criticism. I've tried to understand about this game, but I didn't, because I hear all these things, but what exactly is it a game of? Oh. Mechan- physically, mechanically, how does it It plays work? like, yeah, sorry, I was just like monologuing on there. Um, oh no, that's fine. It's like one of your Devil May Cries. The first two games were much more like Muso, like Dynasty Warriors. This one is much more flatly like an action game, although it has like these dragon riding sequences. Those are what I always see the screenshots for, so I didn't quite understand how that was, like, Devil May Cry-like. Oh, yeah, it's like, well, you know, in the first Devil May Cry, where there was that, like, at the end, you, like, turn into a demon, and you shoot a bunch of things, and it's like a, it's like one of those, like, Panzer Dragoon-ish type things. Anyways, that's kind of how the game, the game, like, switches between those two. It's not an excellent Devil May Cry, but I think it's a lot more decent than people give it credit for. It has all these unlockable endings that sequence break the story, essentially, at least like narratively, if not mechanically really at all. And it has all of this kind of like razor sharp dialogue between the characters as they're going through all these levels that kind of like make it a lot more interesting and kind of like much more bearable than a game that's kind of like on the mediocre side would otherwise be. All right, my turn. This is a game that it was an early access for a while, but got released, uh, I think, two months ago. The game's Hand of Fate, and it's basically a, a standard action RPG brawler sort of thing. Except what I really liked about it is the presentation of it. Because unlike most games, I guess, like uh, Diablo or Baldur's Gate Dark Alliances, where you have like this huge map and expanse and you have to explore to find the enemies and then beat them up, here, all of that is reduced to a tarot card deck. And anytime you flip up a tarot card, you'll get a little snippet of, of text and story, and then you have to make a choice based on it. And if combat ensues, you'll be given a small arena and you do the combat. When it's over, you go back to the fortune teller's table, and then you continue on mm. with these tarot cards, going just jumping your icon to the next card as you try to make your way around the quote-unquote map mm. of just face-down cards. And I really like the narrative delivery of this. And the game itself sort of eventually gets repetitive. You do end up unlocking a lot more cards, and you have to meet certain requirements in one challenge to advance. Some, some of them have narrative strings where one will lead to the next, will lead to the next, while the previous cards disappear from the deck. And I like that, mm. but although it does feel a bit reductive in that so much of the game is more broadly in fantasy tropes rather than getting anything specific. So mm. I would like to see this done with like a specific... Th- uh, how do I put this? With like a specific world and a specific narrative rather than a, a generic dungeon crawler that mm-hmm. makes itself interesting by how it tells its story rather than what's being told. 
Mm, that's really cool. I remember, what was it? There was like an article in Offworld recently about fortune telling in games. And I know that someone I know, I think, is working on some sort of like fortune. Maddie is very interested in the intersection, I know. Yeah. Yeah, and I think it was, like, Merit or someone who was thinking of, like, you know, she might have even actually been talking about this game. Like, I would really love to see a game that kind of was not, rather than kind of, like, just using fortune-telling tropes to, like, be a dungeon crawler, that the experience, like a ro- like a roguelike that is your fortune. You go through your playthrough that accumulates in some sort of random fortune that you're supposed to ascribe meaning to. Roguelike. That is the word I should have said in my description. Oh, was it a roguelike? Yeah, I think that's my <laughs> well, in that game then. Because you, you build the deck, and then the cards are randomly that you built the deck out of are randomly put in front of you. You reach, you get to the end of that level, and then it brings you, and then they put more cards on the table for the next level of the quote-unquote dungeon, and so on and so forth, down, until you pretty much used up the deck and reached the final boss. It's the same sort of building blocks, but they're randomly assigned, both in order and shape, on the table. Though, it probably has one of the best antagonists, because it is the fortune teller sitting across from you, just magically shuffling and mm. dealing out the cards. Always has a, like a, a mystical snide remark to your progress or your actions. He's not really interactive anyway, but he has a presence. Like I said, I feel like a lot of the like the window dressing and the particular construction makes this an interesting game to talk about, or at least even try once or twice, though the actual mechanics of combat and so forth gets route come near the end, especially when the challenge spikes. Yeah, that's really interesting. I kind of do like these games that are inspiring. You know, those little short one-off concepts are so inspiring for kind of like, how could games be imagined according to this principle? They're really nice kind of like for speculating about what games could be or like what could be different about games. Also, what isn't entirely necessary? Because the overmap isn't necessary, yet you still get the feel of a grand journey across large tracts of land. But you don't have to model any of it. You don't even have to show any of it. But you still get the implication of a huge desert of vast forests, uh, the raging river. Mm -hmm. All you need is like a small woodblock style illustration on a tarot card. I think that a conversation that should absolutely be had a lot more is, like, I've always said this every time I talk about games, that I'm, like, I was creative writing trained. So I'm less interested in the idea of, like, the systems in and of themselves or even narrative in and of itself. I'm a lot more interested in the craft and how do you, like, cause a certain feeling in the reader, right? Because, like, that's what you do with writing. You're like, how do I have this effect on people? How do I find the effect that will, like, the mechanic or the narrative, like, what combination of things will result in them having that feeling? And some people will, like, oh, the system, like, you know, it's got to have a system that really, truly is the feeling of walking around some, or the narrative has to spin it for you. But really, I'm just, like, interested in whatever will do that under any circumstances. Like, I don't care if it's, like, real or fake or whatever, as long as if you make the player feel that, that's kind of, like, where I'm at. Yeah, it's another thing that I've gotten interested in is information delivery. Mm-hmm. Because it's, it's what you're saying. It's how you get that across. Is that effective? It Does it stick, in other words? Mostly I've been focusing on, like, exposition dumps. Mm-hmm. But because everything always needs some form of exposition dump. It's how long it is and how complicated it is. 
and how well you manage to sneak in all the bits that the player actually pays attention to. Here, it's almost all through, like, tone and vibe and, and like, the little details of this table in front of you, because there's stuff, like, strewn all around it, and the animations of, like, the dealer waving a little gem says, you win a reward for completing this challenge, and whatever he does, it's all in the little details, nothing is just dumped at you. And I feel that's more effective. Even if I don't actually know what the whole thing was about in the end, mm-hmm. I get a feeling from it. Like, there's no... Yes, he was the bad guy, but we don't know why. We don't know what the whole journey was about. You don't need it. I don't think you, you really need all of that. Because so much was conveyed otherwise. Yeah, I think it's, like, really... It's absolutely so of having those kind of, like, aesthetic, meaningful conversations about, like, how it was said. This is, like... I think you'll always hear in any sort of creative field, though, is like how it is said is so much more important than what was said. In fact, actually, can I start talking about my second game? Does it make sense? Go right ahead. Okay. So the second game I'm going to talk about is Danganronpa, which is the funniest segue probably because it is like so exposition-y. There are so many scenes where you're just being like told all of the stuff it's kind of just like flying at your face and because it's essentially a visual novel with like a couple of mini games and some kind of like deductive puzzles in it it really a very passive form of entertainment where you're mostly hitting the x button to advance dialogue on the other hand though Django is also super super character driven and the entire absolutely 100% of the success of that game in any capacity. The fact that there's like 10 billion like Tumblr fan art images of it, the fact that it had such a huge presence on the internet before it was even formally localized, when it was just like a let's play on a forum on something awful. All of that was a result of the characters and more importantly, the interactions between those characters, which is a thing that in general... I'm super, super interested in how we deal with that because interactions between characters are a lot of like, at least what was popularized in in my particular like circle of literature at the particular time that I was learning it was that character development was really everything that made a narrative meaningful. It was always fundamentally about these characters and what happened only kind of like had meaning insofar as it was driving what we could see of the humanity of these various people. Video games are often like shying away from that. Even our indie darlings, I think, tend to be kind of like monolithic. I'm thinking of like some of our most literary of games. The puzzle platformers? Yes, those fucking puzzle platforms. And even the walking simulators, which, like, I know, like, I know. I will defend the walking simulator to the dust because of nasty people on the internet. However, I think, like, the walking simulator even more is, like, this kind of, like, intensely internally focused about this one person's own inner world, which can be good. Like, there's a lot of, like, really important work that is extremely internally focused on a, on a particular protagonist's brain. But to me, that's also kind of like a, a kind of unbearable place to continue to be in. And I need to see more people interacting with each other. It's kind of weird that like, are kind of like, oh, those silly Japanese visual novels or those like 
big math media adventures that are like Mass Effect and Dragon Age are are really the places that we're like seeing the most character interaction with a few exceptions. For example, like Christine Love's work. She's really interested in making visual novels that are not garbage. So she's really good at that. But I'm kind of I'm almost disappointed in the the lack of people who are following in her footsteps trying to like make interactions between people really interesting. I think that Danganronpa as like murder mysteries themselves are basically a kind of proto video game. I will make the argument. Your Agatha Christie's or or whatnot are all have a certain design. They they certainly have a very distinct formula. And they're meant to be solvable and they're meant to invite reader participation. The way that Danganronpa often functions is that it's giving you these kind of like stock archetypes that are all very generic people. They usually have like a surface level quality to them and then they have like this kind of contradictory or subverting interiority that's actually not very complex, at least in and of themselves, but they're put into this incredibly extreme, unrealistic circumstance and they're forced to interact with each other. And that brings out all of these traits and makes them behave in all of these ways that actually are really interesting. As a player, you kind of just start watching the writers unfold that. But they definitely did that work themselves. I can tell you as a writer, it is kind of like, of course, not outside of your control, but you'll create these characters and then you'll kind of like put two of them in a room and see like, okay, what would they do? Well, this person would definitely do this because they're this way. And that person would definitely react in this way because of that. And then you start from that extrapolating a whole story out of it. I'm really interested to see like what people would have to say about why it's important to see interactions between characters, why that's meaningful. How do we do it better? What's compelling about it? Why don't we see very much of that? Why do we have all of these like kind of like monolithic first person? I'll say it often dudes talking about themselves. Why don't we see more than that is a really big question. And I also have to say that I'm really interested, and I I mentioned this in the article that I wrote about why are these narratives even compelling at all? Why have teens like super latched on to these kind of like really nihilistic, incredibly dark, by the standards of a lot of our games, Danganronpa is really sinister and really, really, really messed up in a lot of senses. And yet its mascot is a teddy bear. (laughs) Yeah. One of the things, too, is that Danganronpa gets how to make itself palatable, too, in ways that few other games do. It's like, it's going to be funny and slapstick one minute, and then it's going to be, like, intense melodrama the next, and then there's going to be, like, some sci-fi body horror-like type stuff going to come in. It's like, they don't care that they're switching gears super fast on it. They don't care that it's like a cartoon. I love that. I love that so much. So many games are like, if I'm going to take myself seriously, I have to stay at this level, the highest level, yeah. all the time. It's not just games. There's plenty of mm-hmm. movies, TV shows, books that just are unrelentingly... Yeah, whatever their, they are. ...with their material. And it's like, there is a portion where you have to be human at some point. Yeah. You have to pull it back. Otherwise, it just... I just heard about this. It's a, a thing... I forgot what it's called on TV tropes, but it's basically where the audience just stops caring because you're just so dark all the time, nothing can affect the audience anymore. Totally. We're kind of getting to that point with the Game of Thrones TV show. Topical. Yeah, so I've heard. I haven't watched it in a long time. 
I think I think I'm going on inertia at this point myself. <laughs> That's what I heard. You know, I just talked to Sophia. Did you know she was oh. running on inertia, and Brienne of Tarth were keeping her in the game. So uh, I guess we're up to my number two. Mm-hmm. I've been championing this game for years now. Anytime it's on sale, I just yell on Twitter, it's on sale, go buy it. I can understand why a lot of people won't, because once you see the words point-and-click adventure game under the Steam tags, it, it does drive a lot of people away. And I will admit, it's mm-hmm. not perfect. There are points where I will say, well, how do you get past it? Just get the walkthrough. There are some points <laughs> where I will, one or two sections where I'll just say, just get the walkthrough and be done with it. But it's Memoria. It's a game by Dedelic Entertainment, who... They and I have a certain history. They will send me a review copy, I will play it, and I will not like it. (laughs) But unfortunately, I have to keep with that little relationship because they sent me Memoria, and it was one of the best games I played that year. Mm -hmm. And I don't know if it's because it's it's based in the Dark Eye universe, which is the German equivalent of Dungeons & Dragons when it comes to Ah. role-playing games. So I don't know if it's that they didn't have to make up the world themselves or they were, had certain restrictions placed on them, but this one actually is interesting, and it has like a solid foundation of character, narrative, and deeper things going on beneath. And what's really brilliant is just how this game starts, because you're just a boy whose friend, who is a fairy, got turned into a raven. So Mm -hmm. you go to a traveling merchant in hopes that he has some way to help, and and you hear rumors that he does. So you go there, and he says, fine, I will give you the help you need, but I want something in exchange. And he says, okay, I want you to help me solve a riddle. You have my attention. Mm -hmm. And the whole point is that, but to understand the riddle, I have to tell you a story. So jump back a couple of thousand years in the past, and now you're playing as another character, called uh, Sadja, a southern princess who wants to help with the war against the demons. I says, okay, here's the standard fantasy story, except no, there's no fighting, is because they're going down into a deep tomb to get some artifact that's supposed to help with the war, and then the rest is just going around all the battles to get it to the citadel. Hmm. And, of course, you're having a lot of revelations and a lot of stories, but... But the thing is, you have to figure out what happened 4,000 years ago, and you're playing through it as the, as the boy hears the story. But then those sections of the game stop once there's no more story and he has to find a new source. The merchant only has so much of the story. So you find an old book by a priest, but that only can tell you so much. So you have to – and it becomes almost a meditation on the nature of storytelling and what is truth hmm. because you have to figure out this riddle – but you don't know what's truth. Even if you are technically playing an absolute version of the truth, there are holes in the journey. And then it comes Mm. to the ultimate hole. And in the end, you figure out, wait a minute, the riddle was a red herring. And it's this other part of her story. And then, of course, some other things happen. You have your climax. And then you suddenly realize, oh, no, the second twist is, no, that riddle did matter, just not for the reasons that everyone thought it would matter. Mm. And the thing is, they're both great characters, Sadia more so than anything else, because she takes no shit from anybody. Mm. And even from a position of weakness, she is probably one of the more interesting characters I've played in an adventure game in recent years. Because the thing is, the most interesting parts of this is when you finally learn the truth, because then it recolors everything before. Mm. Everything you thought you knew is suddenly just recolored, and, it's, and it has completely different implications. 
and you understand the characters completely differently. And that, to me, is great storytelling. It also has one thing I wish more adventure game developers would do, because if you hold down the space button, everything in the room that you can interact with highlights. Mm. There's no more hunting and clicking. It's a little innovation that some developers have taken, but most haven't. And I champion this game whenever I can, even if I recognize the genre can push some people off. That's really cool, though. I, myself, never had a PC as a child, so adventure games were kind of totally outside of what I played. I've definitely never played one all the way through, like a single whatever. But they always really fascinate me, and I love hearing about them, just because you can do so much with them it seems and there's st- like i love that they're still around and people are still making these like really fascinating tight narratives with them it's kind of what you were saying earlier where with like the visual novel and how that kind of gets pushed aside but the visual novel is a subgenre of the adventure game it's just not mm-hmm. the point and click type it's a I, uh, I forgot what he, his name, but he came up with a really good definition of adventure games because it's super broad. And it's basically a narrative revealed through puzzles. And then he mm. defined puzzles as basically any obstacle that you don't use an automated verb set to get through, like jump or shoot. Mm. Anything that you'd have to figure out outside of like repeated actions. And it really fits a different ethos. So you have like the visual novel, which is you solve through dialogue options. And they're mostly dialogue puzzles. Yeah. And the puzzle is which part of the narrative would you like to see? It's a different execution, but the, the idea is similar. You are revealing a story through non-repetitive actions. And I guess the point and click has survived more because it fits the more traditional idea of challenge, even though the best point-and-click adventure games aren't the ones that challenge you mm-hmm. because they stop the narrative dead. Yeah, I th- and I think like one of the things about that makes like say Dungeon Rampa successful because like totally by that definition, it's an adventure game. It is by having all these revelations happen su- successively. If it was a TV show, you'd just have like people revealing one twist after another. But as a player, you get to participate. And, like, sometimes it's awkward when you're like, I don't know what this is, or, like, that was totally the right answer, but the game wouldn't accept it. It still makes it feel like you're, like, helping to figure this out in your own. You're being acknowledged for it. At the same time, it's mostly just the pacing mechanism. And that's totally fine. It makes it exciting. It's, like, it gets you through the game in a timely and interesting way. And that's, like, kind of underrated as an important thing in video games. One negative against Memory is that there are sections where puzzles are put in there because, okay, these make sense for the character at one point has to set up camp while traveling, and it's like, oh, it's getting dark, you better catch a rabbit, get a fire. And it's just like, yeah, okay, it makes sense, but these actions have no narrative basis. There's no reason for them to be here. Mm -hmm. It doesn't advance the story, it's just... And the thing is, it won't continue until you've wittered away your time, but it's just a part of the narrative of showing two characters wittering away their time. Yeah. It's like, so yeah, Daedalic's classical sensibilities of the genre tend to show through and it doesn't do its games much favors. And But I feel like, I guess in that way, I feel Memoria might have succeeded in spite of itself <laughs> rather than because of it. That's mean to say, but still. I would definitely say that's a really fascinating sort of thing to talk about because it's like, 
You can tell what the intention of making you do that is. It doesn't successfully convey two characters whittling away the time. If I was going to say what Avi's, like, the criticism that Avi most wants, it's please tell me why that doesn't work and how you would do it instead. That is the thing that I really want to know an answer to because so often, how many times do you, like, want to convey that off as? You can say, like, it's a boy on purpose, but that doesn't fly by me at all. <laughs> it should be born in an interesting way. I think that any human brain is bright enough to know when it's, it's not getting actually stimulated. Let's finish off with your third game. All right. So I was going to say Odin Sphere. I might kind of cheat and also say that it's kind of Muramasa as well. I really like Vanillaware games a whole bunch. I like them mechanically and I like them aesthetically a lot. I kind of want somebody to tell me a lot more about those aesthetics. I am not like an animator myself, but I love visual art and I know what inspires me and I really like hearing people explain like what makes it interesting or cool. Vanillaware often gets criticized in some ways, but they're also like clearly very good at what they do. And so I kind of like want to see their foibles articulated, if nothing else, because I think a lot of us don't quite have the best tools to explain like what might be good or bad about their art, particularly in terms of their sexuality. But one of the things that I like about both Odin Sphere and Muramasa is that I feel like I can continue to play them over and over. And I really enjoy that. I think that there is this kind of feeling that I identify a lot with like the early Sonic the Hedgehog games of being able to, probably because I was a kid and I didn't have any other games, so I just played that one all the time, and I explored it really intimately, and I knew all of the play and get through it. Um, there's a lot of people who have a game like this. Sophia Postodomino had a couple of zines at GameRex last year, where she talked about PS1 games that made a big impression on her. And one of them was Spyro the Dragon, and it was because because of that same reason, she could just, like, play through it in a week or a couple of days. She could, like, collect everything in the game and beat it. She did that over and over at various points in her life. And I guess I'm interested in whatever factor or combination of factors allows people to do that to a game, makes that their game for whatever reason. I find the combat in those games, like, a lot of people, like, find the combat in Muramasa and Odin Sphere repetitive and boring and or frustrating, which, like, I can't, like, I can't completely disagree with, but I also find it really natural, and I can just, like, put my hands on a controller, make it do things, and continue to play it over and over again, and it's really soothing instead of boring. I don't know, I I find that particular feeling really fascinating, and I guess I just want to hear people tell me more stories about that, or explain why that happens and how for them. Yeah, that's all I got. Okay, that was cool. that was quick. <laughs> all right, then I guess yeah, the, uh, I figured I'd been probably talking way too much anyway. So. <laughs> uh, I guess we'll then just finish up with my last one, which is a, a, a little game I found randomly uh, the other week called ICBM. Don't bother googling it; you're not going to find what you want. I'll put <laughs> all the games we talked about will be in the show notes, and it, it's. 
it's pretending it's from a, it's a 1990s PC game. It's got graphics like from an early DOS game, limited color palette, heavily pixelated, but as detailed as you can get as they try to push the envelope back in those days. And you play as a nuclear silo operator. This is all based during the Cold War. I just love all the little details about this because you're sitting at a desk. You get to look at all the buttons. You can look at all what the machinery does. It'll give you an explanation. You uh, can press a button. It'll bring up a quick reference guide of what all the buttons do and what you're supposed to do. There's a clock just counting down your shift, and you have to be there for eight hours, and then someone else will take over, and you do it in shifts of three. And I love this because Mm. nothing happens. Mm. There are five levels to this game. And the only thing that changes is this map in, like, the off-center middle of the screen that shows you a different part of the world where there are tanks and things, like, just standing at bases and just being themselves. Because it opens up, like, uh, two metal doors, or like, and it's this big presentation. It says, you are now on the job, and you just see your arm sitting next to a cup of coffee for eight hours, and then Whoa. these things come <laughs> crashing down. <sighs> like big blast doors closing. Congratulations, you have beaten level one. <laughs> and they, they have titles like The Premier Love Surprises, A Nice Game of Chess. Our economy depends on this. <laughs> but nothing happens. That's amazing. It's like a waiting for Godot video game. But this is what happened in real life. <laughs> nothing um, happened for 50 years. That's amazing. Some, and we never think about this, but someone had to sit there at, like, these 300-plus silos all across the U.S., doing nothing, going stir-crazy. And another detail I love about this is the select difficulty screen, because they're all labeled after DEFCON 5 is beginner, DEFCON 4 is novice, DEFCON 3 is medium, hard is DEFCON 2, and I don't know what multipolar is DEFCON 1. And whenever you go up and down and select, it'll have more and more cartoon nuclear bombs pointing at it, so beginner will have one, and then it'll just sort of go up to two. And then, there's, and then when you get to the last one, there's like seven, just to show you how serious it is. Mm-hmm. And then there's this video explaining how to play, and, and then you can look at the official in-game play explanation. It's playing off like the propaganda and nationalism of what the mutually assured destruction meant within the Cold War. But then it just shows you the reality of it, and it's this really existentially bizarre thing because the actual game is it goes dude it's just like this little this beep i don't even know what is beeping something's just beeping and he says well can i pick up the phone not unless there's an important call there's a little thing where you put the key you're not allowed to do that unless you're ordered to do a nuclear strike can i touch the dials i wouldn't recommend touching those dials (laughs) so you literally can click on nothing (laughs) you can click on you well you can click on to look at but you cannot interact with them and i just love the little like the contrast that's going on here between like what we thought of as the Cold War and what the reality of at least part of it was. And yes, it was a dangerous and deadly time, but it just it kind of reveals like the empty rhetoric that was going on at the time and how much of that of all the like hotness and danger was rhetoric rather than the actuality of something. Mm-hmm. That's fascinating. That's what I got. You have any other comments? close out on? Let's see. Well, I guess one thing that I will say, because I wanted to say it at, at one point, I wasn't sure if I communicated it, but kind of like the reason why I picked all console <laughs> release games with like 
a fair, maybe not AAA, but at least a fairly substantial budget is partially because they feel like, and part of like the whole thing is, is that there's a kind of like B game that has been neglected, both like critically and in terms of any sort of discussion on it. Folks I know at the Insert Credit podcast, Frank Zavaldi and Brendan Sheffield and Tim Rogers have talked a lot about kind of like interesting triple A to like triple B or whatever Japanese games and I don't hear a lot of other critical discussion of them. We talk about those games sometimes, but I feel like there's a lot of interesting stuff that's coming out like right now that's usually like pretty low budget, really weird and obscure, but often has like really interesting reinterpretations of genres that were super cool to us like ten years ago. We, when we were all about JRPGs, you know, we were all about JRPGs, but they're like literally still making them. Some of them are like the best that they've ever been, but there's way more like pieces I think about like say Final Fantasy VII each year than there is about like Etrian Odyssey, which I think is like an incredible series doing incredible things. And I guess I feel like if there's anything that like needs more criticism, it's the games that are between indie and triple A that seem to be kind of like taken less fundamentally less seriously. I think that like for a lot of like various political and interpersonal reasons, it really makes sense to take like the extreme indie personal game seriously always. But I think there's a lot of stuff to be learned from these games that are being made in these kind of like in between industry indie spaces that we could learn a lot about game design from. I'm often super, super interested in kind of like the craft of how games work rather than the literary analysis of the narratives of those games. And often I see some of like the most interesting ways to kind of like imagine new ways of depicting narrative problems that we're constantly talking about and struggling with in games criticism in some of those games. And I think like Drakengard and Danganronpa, and Odin Sphere, especially with its kind of like really well-crafted, non-literal translation that borrows aesthetically from like the Norse myths that the original text is invoking, all kind of like actually really closely address a lot of things that we kind of like are always begging for more of or always asking why hasn't somebody made a game with this in, even if it's not exactly what we want it to be like because it's you know too anime or too industry or whatever those things may even actually be true but i think that they're coming closer at least from a different angle that kind of like should expand our way of thinking so i'm going to continue to champion this particular subsection of games because i think it's getting neglected to our detriment I find that interesting between the space of, like, the large indies and the AAA. My personal thing that I felt got lost in the shuffle is between the large indie and the tiny art game. Mm -hmm. There exists, like, the middle indie that doesn't get the main publishers, but then the art game crowd sort of, it's too big for them, so they ignore it. They either, they live or die by specialty publications, and I feel that gets lost with the critical sphere. I absolutely agree. And I think there's a certain sort of artlessness, maybe. I'm not sure what the exact quality is, but but there's a certain kind of like 
I hesitate. I don't want to like actually say something like intellectualism or or pretentiousness or something like that because I think that's really reductive and like not fair. But on the other hand, you have like I think the games that you're talking about actually, as well as those like ones that are like between big indie and triple A or between art game and big indie. They're both these kind of games that might not actually be like made with the same sort of like sophistication one way or another that we kind of like expect from like an art game or a big indie and lacks also the kind of like technical polish that like a triple A or also a big indie might evoke. So they're both kind of like, they're lacking in kind of like both polish and or artistic sophistication, which is like, well, what are even are you if you're not either of those? But a lot of them are at least trying some really interesting ideas and at least feel evocative in some ways. Like sometimes they've hit on some really cool mechanics or sometimes their narrative stumbles into something really interesting. And whether it's purposeful or not, there's often a lot to be learned there. And I think that kind of like deciding to take them these games seriously, despite kind of like how they might be like, culty they might be too animated they might be like too cartoonish in ways that we might like kind of instinctively think are too silly and they might also be like unpolished in ways that we kind of were like uh who wants to play that but often there are like in those spaces i find some of the most interesting experimentation like i never would take a risk on some random thing on steam green light or some random game that's coming out from atlas unless i was getting it for free and paid to review it (laughs) um but if i was and i found out that it was really interesting i'm always into people who are telling me about those because i feel like sometimes i just get like the the most inspiring stuff out of stuff that kind of like misses the mark it makes me want to be like what if this actually hit the mark and then i like start thinking about like what i would make that's great to hear. Well, thank you for coming on, APB. Yeah, it was a great conversation.